Hey everybody, it's Jenna from the Democracy Works team. And before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that we are doing a listener survey. Uh, we've heard some great feedback so far, but would love to hear more from all of you about what you like about our show, what you don't like, and who you think we should be talking to in 2020. We hope to make the show even better as we head into next year. You can also leave your name and email address at the bottom of the survey for a chance to win a Democracy Works coffee mug. If you want to see a picture of what these mugs look like, head over to the episode page for this episode. Uh, we have a, a photo listed there. It is uh, very nice looking, the perfect holiday gift for the democracy enthusiast in your life. Uh, so again, leave your name and email in the survey. We will be sure to get those mugs out to the winners before the holiday season. You can find the survey at democracyworkspodcast.com slash survey or click the link in the show notes for this episode. Again, that's democracyworkspodcast.com slash survey or click the link in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to hearing your feedback. I began to discover there was a lot more going on in the country, around the country, at the grassroots, at the state level. And it was totally being ignored by Washington. It was not having much impact in Washington. And it was something that fascinated me. So that kind of a grassroots story was something that, that just immediately clicked with me. When I began to see that kind of ferment and that kind of grassroots activity, I said, I got this. I got to cover it. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Uh, today we are talking with Hedrick Smith, a renowned journalist and filmmaker. You might uh, recognize his name from his work on the Pentagon Papers or his books, including The Russians and Who Stole the American Dream. Power Game. Yeah, Power Game. But today uh, we are talking with him specifically about his latest film, which is called The Democracy Rebellion. And it looks at five grassroots movements in states around the country. Um, things like gerrymandering in Florida, voter access in North Carolina, campaign finance in South Dakota, big money in Washington, and public financing of elections in Connecticut. So really is a broad sweep of both the, the country's geography and and a lot of different issues all crammed into about 55 minutes of a, of a documentary. Yeah, really interesting film, uh, interesting guy to, to spend the day with. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I take two things away from this uh, film and, and uh, Hedrick's discussions over the day and course of the day. And one is that he is impressed with these movements uh, that are all intended to, in some way or another, change the rules of the game to make politics more democratic. And he also has a point to make about what's going on in the American states, that our political focus is too often uh, Washington myopic, and that uh, all kinds of interesting politics are going on uh, in the American states, and that we should be looking there looking there more. And, and in fact, at times he's got a kind of like uh, explorer's <laughs> hat on as he goes to see what's going on in these states that we uh, never knew about. Well, it is, it is, <clears throat> it is partially myopia. It's also, I think, this, this turn toward the states is driven by the sense that, you know, gridlock has made anything meaning, any kind of meaningful 
policy initiative in Washington, almost DOA, right? And so, you know, this the classic idea of Brandeis that, you know, states are the laboratories of democracy, it's also um, the only place where there's there's any kind of real opportunity for, for, for change, especially given the hyper-partisan nature of, of, uh, of you know, intra-D.C. politics. Yeah, certainly. And, and, you know, in many of the American states where you've got kind of one-party control or certainly ideological control in one way or another, you really do see explosions in some of conservative policy. Uh, you know, uh, your own Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Chris, is uh, sort of a sort of a model of uh, going after unions and cutting taxes. And his argument is that, that these pro democracy initiatives are not limited or not exclusive to one, one of the, you know, to red states or blue states. Yeah. He has a subtle point he's making in here, which is, uh, which is important, I think. I mean, he really emphasizes again and again, that many of these reforms that he's talking about are, bipartisan at the public level. And, you know, I I thought an example he doesn't use, but one that I think highlights this quite well, is the way that returning the vote to uh, felons in Florida Florida. uh, was very much a bipartisan initiative and enjoyed, uh, and won with 70, 80% of the vote. Uh, I think that's probably right. Within Florida, so it had to draw from uh, Democrats and Republicans. On the other hand, these are also measures that are often pretty much opposed by Republican office holders. The other thing that's inter- is interesting is that this idea that this isn't going on in Washington because nothing is going on in Washington. And so the the hopes for reform, if there are any, are going to be taking place in the state just because that's the only place where they can take place. Yeah, right and now. and he says that as someone who covered Washington for decades and and still lives there. So mm-hmm. he saw I think firsthand the need to get out of Washington and see what's happening on the ground and in the states. Well, and I also think that what he's documenting in this in this film is some of the reaction to the Republican successes in the states in the uh, mid, in, you know, in 2010, 2012, in those years, where there seems to be a sort of awakening among many at the left that these are important. <laughs> you know, these mm-hmm. rules changes are really critical. They're keeping them out of power. The ability, and, and people don't always get this about how federalism works, but the ability to get control of state legislatures and governors and then to adjust the rules of elections because elections are all based in the states affects their hold at federal power and across the state. And, and it looks like the left has kind of woken up to that. And, you know, I I I take him at his, uh, you know, he he asserts throughout there that many of these movements are have support from both Democrats and Republicans. No, he's got he's you got know. data to show. He's got evidence. The other point of commonality, I think, that supports his argument is that there is this kind of populist ire out there uh, with respect to politics, with respect to elites making decisions for us, um, trying to keep out the regular person. And so there is a way in which Mm -hmm. this drive to fight back against the current rules of the game is not completely dissimilar from the kind of ire, anger, 
that drove people to vote for Donald Trump. And if that's true, to the degree that that's true, that would support the idea that there's something bi- very bipartisan about this. I think we've we've set the table here. Um, I think we should bring in Hedrick and uh, talk to him about what he's seen on the ground. So here is the conversation with Hedrick Smith. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Hedrick Smith. Hedrick, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. It's great to be with you, Jenna. Uh, So you, over the the course of your career, have covered six presidents, is that right? Have have reported from all around the world, but your latest project, the Democracy Rebellion, takes you to such glamorous locales as Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Um, You could have really done anything given your career and your, your trajectory. What what attracted you to these to the grassroots and the, the state level democracy reform movement? Well, first of all, it's a great story. Second of all, it's a great story nobody else is covering. Uh, that's always interesting to me. Third, I wrote a book some years ago called Who Stole the American Dream, which was really about how we got to the terrible economic inequalities we have today and to the dysfunctional political system we have today. And as I went around the country giving talks about that, people said, what are we going to do about that? Or do you know about this? And I began to discover there was a lot more going on in the country, around the country, at the grassroots, at the state level. And it was totally being ignored by Washington. It was not having much impact in Washington. And it was something that fascinated me. And I think I have to say that my years as a foreign correspondent, I worked in Moscow, Cairo, Saigon, Paris, probably worked 40 different countries, taught me that you can't cover a country unless you get out of the capital. You've got to get out into the country. So that's a natural reporting instinct of mine. So when I began to find stories in North Carolina or South Dakota uh, or Florida or uh, Utah or Colorado or New Mexico, I was astonished, first of all. I really enjoy connecting with people. And it struck me as being something very important. And I also have to say, you know, I covered the civil rights movement back in the 1960s. I was literally there in Nashville, Tennessee on February 1960 when the sit-ins began. I was in Birmingham with Martin Luther King, Jackson, uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama when the university was desegregated, Ole Miss desegregation. I covered all those stories. So that kind of a grassroots story was something that, that just immediately clicked with me. When I began to see that kind of ferment and that kind of grassroots activity, I said, I got this, I got to cover it. Yeah. So what motivates people, these, these grassroots organizers that you're, you're out talking to? I think there are probably two things. Uh, well, first of all, they're, they're, they're angry that the democracy doesn't work right. They don't feel as though their votes count. They don't feel as though Washington listens to them. Uh, you look at poll after poll and it says lobbies have too much power. Corporations have taken over uh, Washington. They've captured the Congress. Our system is broken. I mean, they, they literally make that judgment in polls. But I think what really triggered this was a couple of events in 2010. First was the Supreme Court decision on Citizens United, which basically unleashed the floodgates, um, as Justice Stevens said, and, and unlimited corporate money and billionaire money was suddenly flowing into campaigns, and it really offended people. I mean, it really upset them, and a lot of it coming from out of state. If you know, if you're from 
Colorado or you're from South Dakota and there's New York money or Texas money or California money coming in, you really resent it. And I think the second thing was, and most people don't know this, was that gerrymandering has been a problem in our country for a couple of centuries. But the Republicans in 2010 took it national. It's the first time it's ever happened. It was extremely effective. It was a very clever strategy. It took the Democrats totally by surprise. And it took people quite a while to wake up. But by the time the 2012 and the 2014 elections had rolled around, people in Wisconsin and Ohio and Michigan and Virginia and Florida and North Carolina, as well as other states, said, my God, our votes don't count. The deck is stacked. Uh, the outcomes are crazy. You've got roughly equivalent votes in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, of Democrats and Republicans for your congressional races. So you should have nine to nine kind of as the outcome. And it came out 13 to five every time. And in North Carolina, it came out 10 to three every time. Same kind of results. And in Michigan and in Wisconsin, same kind of thing. And so I think people really thought this is terrible, number one. And number two, they realized Washington was so paralyzed by hyperpartisanship that if they were going to do anything about it, it would have to happen at the state level. So people started to do it. It's amazing what's happened. Yeah. And there is kind of an, an antagonistic element, too. I mean, I think even the, the film at one point was called The, the People versus the Politicians. Absolutely. Or you were just starting to mention before, you know, you've covered politics for a long time. Has it always been that way, this kind of people versus the politicians mentality? Um, I don't think it's been a vibrant feeling, uh, but it's been there. I think it's hard it's hard for people to, to come to that conclusion because they Americans have this sense it's fair if the Democrats and the Republicans agree to it. Well, both Democrats and Republicans do gerrymandering. Both Democrats and Republicans use dark money. Both Democrats and Republicans raise money from billionaires and from corporations. And I think it's taken a while for people outside that political network, outside the inside system to say, hey, wait a minute. All those folks, it doesn't matter which party stripe it is, they're all playing the game for their own advantage. They're like businesses that want a monopoly. They want political monopolies. That's what gerrymandering is about. It's about political monopolies. And I think it's taken uh, a lot of people a long time to wake up to the fact that the people have a different interest in the, in the electoral system than the politicians, that their politicians – even in both stripes, or you can include uh, you know, Greens and Libertarians if you want as well. But people in office wind up by having a different view of how the political system ought to operate than people who are just voting and then leaving it to others to, to run the government. And I think that's been a tidal shift. That's, that's been a real tectonic shift in, in mindset. It's still only among a small minority of people. But in history, we'll tell you, it's always small minorities of people that change things. All the revolutions that we study in our history all begun with very small minorities. Right. So in these, you know, one of the ways that these grassroots groups are, are trying to get around these these power structures is through uh, ballot measures, right? They you right. know go out, collect signatures, and then the whatever the the kind of question is gets on the ballot, and you know people can can vote on it. And I I understand that that's that is good for getting around those prohibitive type of power structures. But I'm wondering, but they can also be, they can be overturned. The other side, the people in power can put up a, a competing measure or, you know, they can just kind of go back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering what, what the, the relationship is or what the, the balance should be 
between this kind of ballot measure grassroots approach and working with political parties or some of the kind of existing political structures to maybe create more long-term change, more lasting change, or you know, what that balance looks like yeah, between things like that. Yeah, I think I would like take that. issue with you. I, I, in the first place, there are 26 states that have the power of ballot initiative and the other 24 don't. So, And there are particularly states in the West because their state constitutions were adopted later and that was the vote, having, having a recall and, and a referenda and ballot initiatives. I think that Pretty much most of these ballot initiatives, particularly when they include changes to the state constitution, they usually require supermajorities. It's pretty hard to get a supermajority to roll back what another supermajority voted in. In terms of specific laws, what you do is you find legislators, uh, say the voters put in a public funding system that have public funding of campaigns, the legislature won't fund it. So you do have politicians throwing uh, sand in the works, messing things up, and resisting and, and trying to roll back. But that tends to happen much more with laws and not so much with state constitutions. So I, I think if you're looking for permanent changes or lasting changes, amending the state constitution is a pretty good way to go. And not that the politicians don't try, but they find the, the getting the supermajority going the other way is pretty, pretty difficult. So I think that, I think if you look, look at the, the 2018, it's really striking. I mean, you, had, you had popular initiatives in five states pushed through gerrymander reform. In Ohio, actually, the popular movement put so much pressure on that the legislature finally said, well, we'll do one of our own. But in Michigan, in Missouri, in Colorado, and Utah, they passed ballot initiatives uh, with majorities. Uh, the ballot initiative in Florida back in 2010 was passed by a 62.5% majority. It was astonishing in a, in a very red state. And the legislature then tried to ignore it. They went secret. They did a clandestine gerrymander. And the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and the, and the folks who favored and backed the reform uh, took them to court, took three and a half years in court. But the Supreme Court of Florida finally ruled five to two. Uh, this is an unconstitutional gerrymander. Ordered the eight of the congressional districts redrawn. When you redraw eight, you wind up by redrawing 15 or so. So it really shook up that. And the state uh, state Senate leaders admitted after the state uh, Supreme Court ruled, admitted that they'd done an illegal gerrymander. And so all 40 of those districts were redone. So, I mean, you really find a, a real upheaval. I think the record is, uh, you know, you're going to have these fights going on. Uh, and every, every reform movement surely doesn't succeed. They lose elections. And sometimes when they win, they do get rolled back a bit. But I think the, the record over the last oh, decade or so is that pretty much these reforms have, have begun to change the terrain in states. And I think that in the next decade, you're going to see the difference in Congress. Yeah. So, um, so let me come at this this a different way, maybe. So from what you've seen, are there, while all of these these efforts are, are happening to change the state constitution and, and, and do these kind of things through through ballot measures, are there, are there parallel efforts happening to try to elect people to state government that hold some of these views that the grassroots reformers are, are, are trying to push through? Or Absolutely. Is, is that? Absolutely. Okay. No, there's no question about it. Some of these reform movements, uh, and particularly some of the organizations that I've mentioned, and they're, they're now, by the way, there, there are many, many of these organizations. I went to a conference in Nashville called Unrig the System, and I would guess there, there were a couple of thousand people there from all over the country, and I would guess there were three or 400 organizations, uh, some of them national, most of them local, but still it's a significant infrastructure in favor of reform. And there definitely are, sir. There's an organization called May Day, which specifically raises money and, and donates 
States money in campaigns to candidates who make political systemic reform their number one issue. And they do it in both parties, okay? Primarily, mostly in Democrat, among Democrats, but they also fund some Republicans, particularly in Republican primaries. There are other organizations that are, that are pushing hard to get people running for the legislature in Pennsylvania or in North Carolina or Virginia. Virginia is very interesting because we've just had their election. Election reform uh, was on the ballot there, along with gun, uh, gun uh, control legislation and, and the ERA, the Women's Rights Movement Amendment, you know, it came up again. So I, the sense that reform as an issue is something people are looking for candidates to advocate is certainly front and center now. It's coming. It's not yet high enough. I mean, you still have people worried, understandably, about jobs, about immigration, uh, about climate change, and so forth. So it's among the, the top tier issues, but it's not at the top. Right. So as as we've been talking about, there's there's no shortage of, of problems to fix here from getting money out of politics, gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, all these kind of things. Uh, do you... I guess I'm wondering if this this movement could ever become too broad or too fractured or have too many of these things competing for, for people's attention. I think one of the things that like the anti-democratic forces, so to speak, they're really good at like controlling the message and getting people in line. OK, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. It's all very kind of systematic, whereas this. This, this grassroots movement is by its nature very, very scattered. And, and so I just wonder if there's like, if there's too many things, I guess, competing for time, attention, financial resources, all these the kind of things. Is, the answer is yes. One of the things that's amazing to me as a reporter, and I've run into this uh, on other topics. I did a documentary for P- PBS Frontline some years ago uh, called Poison Waters, which is an effort to look at what happened to the Clean Waters Act 35 years later. And when I went into the field, I was just amazed at how many um, environmental groups were competing for exactly what you were talking about, time, money, resources, issues. There's no question that the political reform movement suffers from the same kind of thing. It is sprawling. It is internally competitive. People will mouth the same general platitudes. Uh, But what's interesting is when you get down to the state level, if some group starts to take a lead and an issue begins to resonate, other groups start to come along with it. And I would also say that, that Common Cause and the League of Women Voters, which are the two most extensive organizations that have most field uh, operations or chapters in the most states, they tend to cooperate uh, with each other. So you find them working together on gerrymandering reform in Michigan and in Florida, and you tend to find them working with other organizations uh, on voting rights in North Carolina because that's a hot issue or in North Dakota. So these large national organizations that do multiple issues. Now, the real problem is some, uh, some of these organizations only do one issue. So it's their issue. So that's all they want to fight for. So they're competitive with others. But the large organizations that do multiple issues, they tend to be, if they're smart, responsive to what's happening in a state. And my observation would be that the most effective, particularly ballot initiatives, but the most effective reform movements are ones that, that are working from the bottom up. Uh, what I find, and I spend a lot of time in Washington because I live there, when I talk to reformers in Washington at the heads of various organizations, they're very convinced that they know what the answers are for Arkansas and Texas and, um, and Montana and so forth. And they're going to go out there and tell them what to do. And I tell them it's not going to work. It's not, you, know, you have to let it bubble up from out there. What are they interested in? And there's um, 
I don't want to, whether or not I want to say arrogance, but there's a, there's a, there's a sense we know better. And we have the money, and particularly groups that are in New York where they can raise a lot of money from people who are sympathetic to democratic reforms, they tend to go say, we got the money, now you got to do it our way. Um, I remember one example out in Washington State in particular where there was a push for public funding, and the money came from Represent Us, which is interested in that issue. A lot of money came from outside the state, and some came from the wife of the then head of Microsoft, half a million dollars and so forth, and they tried to buy signatures. And that was they hired companies to go out and get the signatures for the ballot initiative. But they didn't build a grassroots movement. It got defeated when it got on the ballot. In South Dakota, where it went exactly the opposite way, it came from the bottom up. And South Dakota is a red state, very tough to push for reform. Public funding passed in South Dakota and failed in Washington State. It, it represent us was in both of them. But they took over the movement in Washington State in South Dakota, they were skeptical, so they lagged, and actually the movement did better because it was grassroots. Yeah, sure. So so bottom-up and, and paying attention to what's happening in the state and kind of responding to that. Are there other qualities that you think make a, a successful political reform movement or maybe pitfalls to avoid? I think that uh, I think that one of the things I learned when I saw the Citizens United uh, initiative in Colorado work uh, run by a woman named Elena Nunez for Common Cause, she was very smart in her strategy in persuading people, and this is fundamental to this kind of reform, that if you were interested in environment, if you were worried about health care for the elderly, if you were worried about after-school programs for kids, if you were worried about uh, gun safety and control, whatever issue you were worried about, Fixing the political system was the gateway to getting to your issue. So maybe fixing the political system was seventh or eighth or ninth in your priorities, but you ought to make it first if you wanted to really get to where you wanted to go on your number one issue. And she persuaded a lot of organizations to do that. So that kind of coalition building with groups that are, are not putting uh, systemic reform at the top of their agenda – is very effective. Certainly one of the pitfalls is out-of-state funding, out-of-state direction, out-of-state taking over the thing. Uh, it's also not very smart to offend major constituencies. You know, you're going to have to work with environmental groups. You're going to have to work with labor unions. You're certainly going to have to get uh, transpartisan support. You're going to have to get Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, particularly with the growing number of independents in the country. Uh, younger people are 50% plus independent. So it, you've got to be much smarter about the way you build a coalition. And in some ways, Amateurs are more naturally inclined to do that than people who are longtime political pros because they tend to work the party basis. They tend to work uh, established uh, political uh, groups. And the amateurs, if they're good at organizing, they've got to have that skill. But if they're good at organizing, they have a tendency to want to embrace everybody, bring everybody in. And the reform movements that I've succeeded uh, certainly do that. Yeah. So, so what happens after one of these movements succeed? The ballot measure passes or whatever the outcome they want happens. But there's this group of people that have just spent I don't know, six months, a year working on Two these years. issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what happens after? Well, it, it, well, what happens is in a number of states, uh, they do what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, which is they fight off the effort of the other side to reverse the reform. So they're often very engaged in that. And then once they've survived that cycle, then they start to look around. We won one. What else do we need to do? I mean, I, I can tell you that's going on in Michigan right now. That's going on in Washington State right now. Uh, it's going on in in, uh, in Florida. 
I mean, they move they move from the gerrymander reform into the business about restoring the the voting rights of former felons and that kind of stuff. So I think what happens is not everybody does it, but usually the leaders and some of the people who are important say, "Well, this other issue is important to us. Let's let's move ahead on that." I think the sense of the sense that people power can work and does work and we got a victory here and our system's going to be better, it's going to take time, really does yield more children, more effort. Um, I have a friend, uh, a guy named Ernie Cortez, who's a Hispanic organizer in the southwest in Texas through Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico. And he said to me at one point something I thought that was really wise. He said, Rick, people say power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He said, powerlessness also corrupts. It corrupts democracy at the core. I mean, I think the reason there are not more reform movements is partly the silo business I was talking about before, but even more a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of that we, the people, don't have the power. We should, but we don't have it. And I think once people break through that in a state— they're back for more. I mean, in South Dakota, for example, they won that victory. The pros came back. They nullified it. They've gone back and fought them again. It's going to be back on the ballot in 2020. They didn't give up. I mean, the, I think if they'd lost the first time, maybe they would have given up. But they won the first time, so they know they can win, and they're back at it. So they do come back. So Republicans, I don't know that they would, would frame this necessarily as a, a you know reclaiming our, our democracy. They would see it as, as undermining what they as a party stand for. Uh, and, and their values and and these these types of things. What what do you make of that from your experience? And and do what do how do the people that that you talk to feel about that? Um, there's no question that is the position of most Republicans who have been elected to office and who are engaged in politics. Certainly in Washington, you know, almost to a person, with a few exceptions in Congress and in many state legislatures. Okay. But it's not what happens at the grassroots. It's a totally different perception. If you look at the actual voting on the gerrymander reform in Florida or at the Rolling Back Citizens United. It goes right across party lines. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of ordinary Republicans who oppose reform and say this is going to benefit the Democrats. The Democrats who are in office are pretty stupid about it because what they do is they proceed to put together big reform packages like H.R. 1, uh, which has all everything all wrapped together, public funding of campaigns, matching grants, gerrymander reform, congressional redistricting, everything all wrapped in one. And they happily passed it when they took over the House of Representatives and they didn't get a single Republican vote. Would have been a heck of a lot smarter of them to break it up into pieces and to find those parts that might have appealed to some Republicans because there's no way in the world any party, either Democrat, Republican, can possibly pass. They're not majorities in most states. There are very few states. In the state of Massachusetts, which a lot of people think of as a reform state, 62 percent of the electorate is either Republican or independent, mostly independent. And yet the, the Democrats control what the heck goes on there, either with reform or blocking gerrymander reform or blocking public funding of campaigns. So party attitudes are in the way. Uh, there's no question about it. And more and more people are coming to understand that. People are really fed up with the hyperpartisanship. And most importantly, independents are. And they're a huge – they're now 40 percent of the American public. Uh, American electorate. So if you got – even in South Dakota, I mean South Dakota Democrats beat the Republicans who outnumber them almost two to one basically by winning the independence over. So I think that 
attitudes are really changing, and they're very, very different at the at the grassroots from what they are mm-hmm. in office. Right. That's the people versus the politicians. Sure. So I've heard you say that the the media pays too much attention to the candidates and the horse race and and all of that, and and not enough to these these grassroots issues that that people are are concerned about on the street on the ground. Um, is this a product of or is this something that's unique to our media landscape today? I mean, do you think that, for example, these types of issues would have made the evening news or, you know, newspapers at, at the start of your careers? Is it just about kind of the, the I can tell you, today? covering the civil rights movement, the, the dogs in Birmingham and the fire hoses in Birmingham against the black demonstrators from uh, students from high school and college made the evening news and CBS, NBC uh, and ABC every night. And that was a major factor in changing the political attitudes in Washington. Absolutely. It's no question. It's a radically different treatment of this kind of grassroots movement. I think there's a cynicism about our political system among the uh, baby boomer generation ge- journalists. There's a sense that nothing can be done. It, it sort of, um, it, it's sort um, of – it's hyper-partisanship. Uh, that's the easy story to tell. We journalists love conflicts. We can we can get somebody on the right, somebody on the left screaming at each other. Uh, we get a better audience that way. I think Trump news is big. Whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, um, the networks and, and cable television are making enormous amounts of money off that. Uh, circulation at the New York Times, the Washington Post has gone up. So it's really easy. I call that fire engine journalism. Easiest thing in local journalism is to have a police radio and the minute there's a fire, you go chase the fire trucks, you get dramatic pictures. And it leads the news. And you probably haven't told people anything they really need to know unless it's a real disaster where there are a lot of people killed. And then and then you need to look at the fire codes and you need to know whether or not the fire uh, department is working right, You know whether or not something fundamental can change. And sometimes the follow-up journalism is done. Reporting Trump tweets is fire engine journalism. Now, there are 10 percent of them that are really major policy pronouncements that deserve the front page. But 90 percent of them are repetitive. They're changed within uh, 20 24 hours or 48 hours. If they got to be reported, they should be reported in a modest story on page 13 or page 19. And I think that's part of the problem. Uh, We're so caught up in easy reporting, profitable journalism for the entities that we're not doing our job. uh, And and we're also very comfortable sitting in New York, Los Angeles, and Washington uh, and telling everybody what's going on in the rest of the country, unless there's a forest fire. And then we'll go out and we'll cover it at Prairie in, in, you know, in California or unless there's a flood somewhere and we have to go there. Nature kind of takes us out there. But even when we cover elections or we cover congressmen uh, or members of Congress, men or women coming home, what do we do? We have a little capsule of Washington that goes out to the – and we cover town meetings of that person, then we go back. I don't know that any of, of all of what you've just been describing is going to decrease as we head into to next November and the um, presidential election coming up. So g- given that, what can people in the grassroots do to, to, to keep the momentum going? And for people that are maybe looking for an alternative to that fire engine journalism, uh, where would you recommend that they, they go to find that information? Well, dare I say, what? PBS, The Democracy (laughs) Rebellion, next January, February, whatever. I don't mean to be self-serving about it. It, 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 What's important here is not my documentary. What's important is what is actually happening in the country. And so you need to look for it.
it and find out about it. And then, and then I think, you know, put some pressure on your local media to make sure they're covering something that's going on locally and say you're not satisfied. Well, Hedrick, thank you so much for, for your time today and for sharing all these examples with us. Uh, we will link to, to your film and some of the other resources you mentioned in the show notes. But uh, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to, to listen. Well, that, that was a, a great discussion uh, about a really had a really entertaining and informative film. I get the sense he puts a lot of faith in initiatives and referendums. Yeah, more than you and I. Yeah. We've had the conversation. We, we talked to John Gastel on Everyday Democracy about uh, the citizens' initiatives in Oregon and just how, well, how easy it is to corrupt this process with money. Yeah, there is right among other among other problems with them in that they can be very very difficult for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Having mm-hmm. just voted on an in a referen, referendum issue in Pennsylvania that I don't think anybody completely well, and that's understood. by design too, yeah. right? You know, and, these things are tested. But but it also, I mean, I do think that the film really highlights something kind of interesting, and that is that you know the public is often in a different place than its elected officials, right? Uh, and we we often see this in the context of polarization, uh, especially polarization around issues where the public is not nearly as far apart. In other words, Democrats and self-identified Democrats and Republicans are not as far apart on a lot of issue positions as elected officials are. And so elected Democrats and elected Republicans are much more polarized than citizen Democrats and citizen Republicans tend to be. And one way you see it here is that, you know, he's got some of these initiatives that are passing Clearly with bipartisan support if they're getting 70% of, 70% of the public. Or recently in Florida with the uh, felons uh, initiative, which passed uh, mm-hmm. with Democrats and Republicans. But then when they get into the legislature, they get into the hands of elected officials who are far more polarized and who also have you know, their own seats to protect. Right. You see often a very different set of preferences. Yeah. And they, they try to then undercut the initiative. Yeah. that's If you can get a politician money or votes – they will listen to you, right? And somebody like the NRA can do both, right? And so if you can do that, you are far more powerful than the 70, 80% of the American public that want some kind of gun control legislation passed. Well, sure. I mean, great example, gun control legislation, yeah. where if it were being done by initiative, you probably actually could you get some gun control legislation through. Certainly background checks, which has, you know, something like 80% right, support exactly. across the country. But Democrats and Republicans are highly polarized on the issue. And then are, and, and, and so his, he, he, he's showing that this is operating in the states as well. And, he, and he's also pointing to a problem, I think, with initiatives, which is that the legislature gets the, the last step because then they have to implement these. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. And that's yet another reason to, to see this whole thing as problematic. But I would say that if you understand these kinds of movements as being kind of the people acting against the interests of the politician people versus politicians, that is precisely what the initiative was designed to do. It was designed to give people a direct access to legislation in a way that circumvented these entrenched power. Now, is, does that mean that's always what happens? No, I don't think so. But you could make the argument that some of these initiatives are working exactly the way they were designed to work. And if that's true, then, you know... 
they, right, power they, to were, they were designed to bypass political parties. Right. Well, and yeah, and and entrenched power. And right? entrenched power. Yes. Yeah. And so, and if entrenched power is part of the reason why people feel shut out, then that is a legitimate and extent. It's still there, right? And and they have every right to use it. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I, I think is worth also that we've we've talked about before is kind of the role of the party in a democracy and how it has not just a legitimate but maybe even a necessary role to play in organizing people, bringing them together around shared points of view, shared values, and how over time their power, for good reasons, has been kind of chipped away. And, and one way to see Citizen United, the, the ruling there, by freeing up individual money, it once again took away power from the, the party. Uh, because all this money from from very very rich people was going directly to candidates, and so in the 2016 Republican primary, you saw candidates courting individual donors, and those individual donors were keeping them in the game uh, in ways that weren't solely a matter of how right. many they, votes they were getting. Yeah, right? it restricts the party's ability to gatekeep. Right, exactly. Remember that Citizens United really had two provisions to it. And I thought in the film sometimes he was speaking to both of them, but it wasn't always clear that he was speaking that's to right. both parts. One part of it has to do with transparency, and that's dark money. Mm-hmm. And that is that almost all campaign finance law, or the most important campaign finance laws, are, are built on the idea that the public needs to know where the money's coming from. And the thing that Citizens United did was to eliminate a lot of that transparency. You could give money to these super PACs without having to reveal who they are. And the film has, I thought, just a wonderful section where it kind of digs in and starts to uncover the multitude of groups that are, and and where where their support comes from. The other part is that corporations can spend whatever they want because political speech is their political speech is protected. Right. And that's a different set of, provi- of provisions. Should corporations have the same... Uh, same Freedom. F- yes, freedom, it's, it's of free, freedom of speech that's protections. How that's that, how the argument is Yeah, that, that the public has. All right, well, so we have to give one more shout-out to, to Hedrick Smith. Just a, just a storied <laughs> career in journalism and really so impressive just to be around him, just knowing how much history he was, was part of. And I told him I thought you know I read the Russians when I was very young and it's still I still remember parts of that book so quite a force to be reckoned with and it's it's in our good fortune that he's here doing this stuff bringing this to our attention yeah I appreciate his coming up to visit us in uh, at Penn State so um, with that we can bring it in for a landing uh, I'm Chris Beam I'm Michael Berkman thanks for listening Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahe, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.